Hello and welcome to Digitel, a leadership blog mini-series where we chat about navigating the digital healthcare world. We'd like to thank Chime, the College of Healthcare Information Management Executives, for sponsoring this mini-series. Today we're going to be talking about what digital healthcare can learn from other industries. Healthcare has for a long time been falling behind the private sector when it comes to harnessing the power of digital. There was a massive change of pace during the pandemic and we all saw that healthcare was capable of rapid change and uptake of digital technology. Today we'll be discussing how much further we have to go and whether there is more to be learned from other industries. Dear McCreen is the Chief Digital and Technology Officer at Sussex Community Foundation Trust, where he's worked for the last three years. Before he joined SCFT, he had many varied digital leadership roles in fields such as finance, travel and government. He has 24 years experience delivering change across both public and private sectors. He's a passionate practitioner, <laughs> a difficult one to say. He's a passionate practitioner of service design and agile ways of working. And his bio tells me that he's always happiest when obsessed with a new opportunity to advance another organization using the power of digital technology and data. Hi, Diamond, and welcome. We're really pleased to have you on the podcast. And thank you for making time to record with me. Hello. So firstly, could you talk to me a bit about your career journey and how you've got to where you are today? Sure. So not a normal career journey. I left school with my A-levels when I was 17 uh, and decided that the best thing to me to do was to not go to university, although I did have a place to go. So it's not because I didn't get good results in my exams, uh, but I'll, I had a place to study biochemistry, really, at, in, in, down here in Brighton. And I decided that I was going to go traveling instead. I, had, I was supposed to come back to university, but I ended up uh, working on a kibbutz in Israel, sail, sailing yachts around the Mediterranean. I previously had learned to be a skipper in my youth because my father was in the Navy. So I sort of detoured away from sort of academia and became a sailor for a number of years, which was a lovely thing to do, sailing around in the sun in the, in the Mediterranean and other such lovely places. Quite an unusual start for a digital leader, I reckon. That's not usually what you find. That was my, that was my university bit. Um, so, so I did that. And then after a while of working for rich people on their big fancy boats, tired of them, as is probably not unexpected, and came back to London, where, where I sort of got myself a job as a cycle career. That was my a job that I always fondly remember. If I could do anything, I'd love to go back to that job. I probably wouldn't survive a minute nowadays, but I loved it. Zooping around London, if you can imagine, in some kind of mad, frenzied, furious cycling of 100 miles a day or whatever it was. I loved it. So that was a good fun. That was my return back to the UK. And then I think it got cold and wet and rainy a few, two times. And I was like, I can't do this job anymore because I'm freezing. Uh, so I found some friends who got me a job. What was initially to be telephone bashing for a, like a telemarketing operation. So just like in out of the cold really was the only real reason for doing it. And when I was in this organization, I realized I'd really hated telephone bashing. And um, they were struggling as an organization to sort of wire up all their computers. So I just thought, well, I'll figure that out. So I said, Let, I can do that. And so I just started wiring up the computers in the office. And then eventually they sort of realized I could make out. So I taught myself how to do databases, taught myself how to do a little bit of applications. And that was back in like the early 90s. I even built my first website in 1994, which is probably before most people even knew what the internet was. And my first email address was a CompuServe one, which was, you know, when it was numbers rather than words. Um, so that's when I sort of started my technical journey and quite quickly became sort of the head tech person of this small little company. It was an educational TV company. Um, and we grew it from like 15 people up to 80. And I sort of basically got a chance to learn everything on the job from there. Then um, I got to about my late 20s and decided that I needed to travel some more. So I started off to Latin America and um, 
was driving across, driving, driving my Beetle from California all the way down. My plan was all the way down to Tierra del Fuego in Argentina, but I ran out of money for various reasons in Guatemala and had to set myself up in business. So I set myself up as a technical person with my own business in Guatemala City and built systems and did all sorts of techie people for, for things for people there. I stayed there for about four or five years, uh, which was an interesting experience. And weirdly, Latin America, because it was closer to America, was better teched up in many ways than England was at the time. So you think it's a backwards third world country, and it is, but sort of tech is quite good. Uh, so I came back after doing that for a few years, back to the UK after doing that for a few years. It was good fun. I had my own business out there, you know, walking around with a laptop and just building systems for different types of business, cheese businesses, import businesses, all sorts of crazy stuff. And my favorite one was I managed a system for a guy who had a bull farm. How do, you, how do you get the most efficient mechanisms of growing your bulls to make meat, which is why technical challenge for that role. Uh, but I came back and I phoned some friends of mine and I had myself a job with AOL, America Online, which is one of the, the forefront of the internet stuff, uh, pretty much getting off the airplane when I arrived back in the UK. Um, and I went in and we set up shopping channels. We set up travel channels. So it was the, it was the beginning of when people started to buy stuff online. So, you know, so buying, you know, so commerce, we, we were the first people to set up a sort of online travel channel so you could buy your holidays online. And so that whole kind of e-commerce thing, which is where I sort of started into bigger, kind of bigger stuff, tech stuff and the smaller organizations I'd worked for. And that was a fun experience. Um, really enjoyed it. Uh, AOL was sort of the only place at the time where anyone could access the internet with. And so there was lots of technical conversations with companies that sold the product with AOL with its market. So it was kind of interesting private sector space to be in. Bashed around in there for about four or five years enjoyed it met my wife then um and um, then i was enticed out of there to go to work in finance because they pay they pay way more money in finance than they do in other places so i started working on a website for trading so imagine people who've got their own money who want to trade shares and stocks and things like that so i was the head of a website for a, one of the one of the kind of they call it independent trading websites so i did a bunch of time there and then sort of bounced around in the finance world, worked for investment banks and so on. So I sort of moved around in the finance world for a number of years. Uh, enjoyed that immeasurably, but sort of tired eventually of sort of with now a small family going back and forth up to London and getting sort of sent all over the world. And those sort of jobs are sort of quite demanding of your time. So I was always looking to try to find a way to sort of, by this point, I'd moved down to the South Coast with my family. So I was commuting up to London. So always looking for opportunities to sort of be a little bit less on an airplane all over the place, especially when you're working in investment banking. Although fascinating challenges, building systems for uber wealthy people to manage all their money in all sorts of strange and interesting ways. Um, so I spotted an opportunity to work for TUI, big travel company, and I was a di director of digital there. And the reason I chose them because they had an office that overlooked the pier in Brighton. And I thought I could walk to work along the beachfront uh, and that worked for about a week. And then they were like, can you go to Boston? Can you go to Qatar? Can you go here, go everywhere? So, so I did it for a few years, but it sort of went back to being sort of going everywhere, solving problems everywhere, which is fascinating, but not what I was sort of looking for. Then, so after doing two for a while, and I'd obviously I'd done travel when I was AOL. So travel was sort of familiar to me going back to two. It's a big organization, interesting place to work. Head offices in Crawley. So, you know, there's a lot of going back and forth up and down the, around the South Coast. I... Um, was rung to see if I was interested in going into government, which would have been the last thing that I would ever imagine I would do. I was sort of dead set on private sector, blah, blah, blah. And so I got a call, would I be interested in becoming a digital leader in government? And they didn't say to me when they spoke to me, which bit of government, they just said, they're looking for digital experts to join government. This was the advent of gov.uk, the government digital service, that whole kind of movement. And as an external digital person, you could see into government and you could see things like, 
getting your MOT done was being improved. So the whole digital sort of mindset was happening in government. So I was sort of intrigued by it, but sort of myself, I mean, all of my stereotypes about civil servants were sort of ringing loud in my ears. Like, why would you ever do that? It's boring and slow and painful and all these things that I imagine. But the guy who was sort of talking to me sort of talked me into it. He said, you should go and have a look. It's a bigger opportunity. So I went in, spoke to people, and then sort of become a bit enamored with, I was sort of brought into the Department of Health, a bit of it called Public Health England, and sort of became enamored with the science of it and the, just the knowledge behind some of these professions that, that are in these areas. And I had a really interesting uh, gentleman who became my boss when I started to be the digital leader for Public Health England. And it was just the science of public health. He just wowed me with his academic knowledge and I was just sort of in, intrigued by it. So to, fascinated to see, could you use tech to improve this? I suppose I've always in my heart, even though my career has taken me in many ways the opposite direction of the good use of technology. And I realized the irony of that when I've built technology to help rich people stay rich in finance, but actually I've sort of always enamored with the idealistic part of it. So for me, public health England and what it was trying to do with a really fascinating opportunity. So I jumped and said, yeah, sure, I'll go and do that for a while. And it's tough work in civil service. It's quite, you know, money's hard. Their organizations are very bureaucratic. All those things I found difficult, but I stuck at it for almost five years. And you are able to break through and deliver sort of amazing stuff. So we built apps that sort of got downloaded millions and millions of times that shifted the whole paradigm in terms of people's consumption of sugar. And so there were some really interesting things. I got, whilst I was at PHE, I got sort of seconded a little bit into NHS England and was involved in the apps library, the development of NHS.UK, sort of giving a PHE, a Public Health England view of what NHS was doing. So it sort of became enamoured really through the guise of Public Health England with the NHS, which I'd never thought about either as a career thing, but sort of started to grow more fond of the NHS the more I worked. And weirdly, I was at the head office, right? So in Skipton in in the centre of London. Uh, but sort of became more and more enamored with the NHS and saw then a, then a role popped up here on the South Coast as a CIO for an NHS trust. So if you can connect the, the passion for the digital changing, making the world a better place thing with, and I can still walk to work thing, then I found the perfect job, which is to be a CIO of a, a trust in Sussex. So that's my sort of journey. N- nothing really sort of massively well planned, sort of trying to go higher and get more influence and so on. So in your choices of places to go and work, but it maybe just following a curiosity is probably the way that I would describe it. That's probably my journey. And and sort of weirdly got, I suppose I've ended up in a sort of scenario where you've got quite a broad, um, a weirdly broad background of kind of e-commerce, digital stuff. Obviously when I was in, early on in my career, I did a lot of networky cable sort of stuff. So I was a network engineer. And then I've also done commerce and finance and so on. So, so, I, so I've ended up with quite a broad set of sort of technical digital and data skills as all the areas I've worked in. So it's, you know, so and I'm, I'm hopeful that that's useful in these public sector organisations that I work in. So that's probably a very quick spin through my career. It is a quick spin. It's lovely to hear so much about your, the reasons for, for many of your job choices are because of the life that you want to live rather than because of a job that you want to have. And so you've got your family at the centre of lots of that or wanting to travel or not wanting to travel because of your family and it's not like oh I was seeking this job and this amount of money and this like promotion it's about how you want your life to be and then you found a job near where you want to live where you don't have to travel lots and you and you can work in the health service which sounds like you're quite passionate about that so it's really lovely thank you for telling us about your career so far um so the next thing I wanted to ask you about and you have kind of talked a bit about it already but um just to go into maybe a bit more detail about it because you've moved into the NHS having and you've talked already about how the there was that lure of the um the 
lots more money in the finance sector um, and the bigger salaries. And I know there's lots of challenges recruiting digital experts from other sectors into the health system. So what was it that specifically that made you think the NHS is for me, apart from being a job on the South Coast with your family? Um, and, and, and do you think that we could use some of that knowledge to, to make sure that we can get other fantastic digital leaders into the health service too? Yeah, so I definitely think that if you're going to spend your time kind of into the complexity of technology and data and all this stuff, there is no better reason to do it than to try to make people's lives better, right? Fundamentally, why get out of bed in the morning? You know, and I've done all the opposite, right, which is help rich people manage and hide and squirrel away their money and all these other things. But actually getting up in the morning to help a community nurse be more efficient on their journeys around and supporting patients or whatever sort of problems they may have and care they need, I think is such a such a really honest thing to do. So, so therefore, there's definitely a kind of a more of a passion for the power of technology because of the rolling in. So if you're trying to entice more people into the NHS, the thing to sell, and, and it works for me, is to sell the, the power of it. I suppose I started to realize this when I worked in Public Health England. You know, we developed apps there, you know, like things like the Sugar Smarts app that people use to kind of scan the barcodes on stuff in the supermarket or when they buy shop, and it would tell you how much sugar was in it, so how unhealthy it was for you. And you could see that the, 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 the huge scale downloading and use of these apps, they're really powerful tools and you sort of start to realize, I mean, worked in the private sector for so long time, you know, you might build the coolest product for an investment bank or a trading app or a travel company, and it might get used by hundreds of thousands of people and it might make the organization really successful. And you deliver a, a simple little app for something like PHE about scanning barcodes for sugar, and it gets downloaded by 20 million people. And you think, whoa, this is a different scale of order in terms of the impact it can have and the value it has for people's lives. Mostly in private sector, you're trying to make money out of people and give them something in return. But it was just purely a give rather than a take, which I really sort of in, kind of landed on me quite strongly. So when so, so working in the NHS, that the passion for it is, can you just do stuff to get up, help people? And it's, I think it's a genuine thing and I really enjoy it. And, and, and it kind of, maybe I'm paying back for the crimes of all the financial stuff and all the things I've done in other places, but I do, do get a huge amount of value. It's definitely not to earn money. You know, the days of hundred percent bonuses when you work in the finance are over, that doesn't happen in the NHS, but that's okay. Um, and it's not, I mean, I definitely want to be close to my family and be able to enjoy the kind of the life balance that you get from being in these kind of things. But I don't choose these jobs just to do that. I'm, I'm very clear that I want an opportunity to be able to do more and I'll push and try to be more achieving. So you're you're looking for that perfect balance, which is a job that's interesting, that gives you an opportunity to use the knowledge and the skills that you've got to help somewhere, but also if fortuitously a, a walk down the beach in the morning as well. So, you know, I wouldn't have taken any job for that reason, but you're getting that right balance is perfect. But it's the passion for its ability to change. The idealism about what technology can do for the betterment of humans is something I've always been really so keen around. So that's that's what I'm hunting. And that's all that's what I sort of started to learn in PHE and then saw a lot more when I got to NHS. I was enamored by the power of the NHS brand. So if you put an NHS logo on an app, and so I worked on the whole app stuff in the NHS. If you put the NHS logo on any app and say, here's an app and it's got the NHS logo on it, immediately the citizens of the UK trust it entirely. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And you've worked in all sorts of private sector organizations with a myriad of different brands and people have lever different levels of confidence in those brands. And then you come across this thing called the NHS, which is the most powerful brand ever and the most recognized brand ever. And people, and it's a religion in our country. So sort of there's a part of me from a digital sort of 
using the power of digital, that brand is sort of an enabler to do even more with it. That sort of fascinates me as well. So those are the reasons. So if I was talking to somebody coming into the digital space in the NHS from other sectors, I'm like, you know, you can grind away doing it in all other industries, but here you get all the tools to do something really amazing. You've just got to be clever enough to figure out how to do it, you know? So that's sort of the answer. It's a brilliant answer. And I think perhaps the um, the way to lure people in is to be um, more explicit about that in the way we advertise our roles and say, do you want to do something that's going to make a difference to people? Do you want to feel good about your using lives. your skills? Yes, data saves lives, digital saves lives. And we should talk about that more often, shouldn't we? No, it's lovely to hear that. And I think um, you're, I mean, obviously I'm a nurse and I come from a background of working in the NHS and I'm completely on board with that. I think um, it feels amazing to to be able to say that you're doing something that helps other people when you go into work and um Agreed. yeah no it's lovely so good to hear thank you and i think we can definitely use that by um being more noisy about how good that feels when we're trying to find talent across the nhs so you sat so you've had a really varied career you've worked in lots of different industries but mostly working as a kind of digital leader in those areas and um and i know that you've um you've been impressed with the speed of our um digital change over the over the pandemic and that we've all moved really quickly in the NHS and I remember hearing you say actually that you were you've never seen anything like the speed that that's happened at um so perhaps we're doing really well in some areas but um what would be really interesting to hear from you is what things you think we still haven't learned from the other industries you've worked in what do we need to be thinking about in the NHS to make our digital transformation happen more effectively that you've learned from the other places you've worked yeah so <clears throat> Excuse me. I think reflecting on that point, just briefly, the one that you mentioned a second ago, I think that there's something really fascinating about what happened during the pandemic in the NHS. So I've been doing digital transformation in a myriad of different organizations. And normally you're pushing water uphill to try to get organizations to adapt to it. And even when I first started the NHS, I expected it to be pushing water uphill as well. And that's, you know, that's what you get paid for. That's the job. Um, but what happened was that there was a brilliant connection between the, the kind of the core belief of everybody who's, a clin who's clinically um, patient facing in the NHS, who really wants to help their patients, sort of like it's a kind of, you know, it's a, such a powerful driver for individuals in the NHS. And what happened was the pan pandemic meant they couldn't see their patients. And so the only way they could see their patients was to use technology to be able to kind of help them. And so therefore, when you're sitting there with all the tech in the world to throw at people and the people who want to help the patients can't, then they're going to suck that tech in as quickly as possible. So that 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 coalescence of the tech being available and the passion for people to help their patients and not being able to do it in the way that they normally did meant that tech was absorbed. So I've never experienced the digital transformation like that because of because of the passion of the NHS people to be able to help their patients and desperately wanting to get to meet them and so on and so forth. So and I've pushed technology in so many organizations against so many different barriers. And some organizations, normally in a private sector, it's you go and speak to the CEO and they say, roll out tech and save me lots of money because I can maybe lay off half my stuff. I don't need them anymore, or I can get more out of my customers because it's quicker for them to buy stuff off us. That's sort of the model for the private sector. So it's a very different paradigm in the NHS, which is, you know, can we do better for our patients? And in that, the pandemic sort of made a cauldron scenario, which is there was no way out other than to use the technology at pace and, and in a ferocity that I've never experienced. And it was amazing. And it was lovely to be there. I know it's not a good thing to say enjoying the pandemic, but it was lovely to see, to witness that moment happening in the NHS. And I don't, I've never experienced anything like that. But going back to the bigger question around what helps, what can the NHS learn from other organizations? Do you know, my experience in working in the private sector when I was working in investment banking, I think is a really powerful lesson for the NHS, which is the sense of being valued as an employee. I was having this conversation with our CEO just the other day, actually, which is, you know, I do think that because we've been successful in getting 
uh, more kit out to all of our staff, giving people newer staff, new systems. And, you know, we've been able to enable, and part of that's been pandemic, more funding available, et cetera. You know, if you turn up to your job and you've got, you're not given a broken old laptop, you're giving a new shiny laptop and a new phone, it's a factor in the way that you feel valued by your organization. When I worked in investment banking, literally the first day they arrive, they sort of ask, before you arrive, they ask you, what toys do you want? And when you show, and they're all in nice boxes on your desk, you get to unwrap it. That sense of being valued is such a powerful thing about making you commit to the organization, believing that you're supported in your role and so on. And I know we strive, you know, we strive in, 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 in Sussex community to try to find those new starters and make sure we equip them very quickly. And I think we're getting really good at it, but there's something just about simple moments like that, that are really powerful things that public sector, private sector organizations work. They know that they've got to sort of indoctrinate new staff, for instance, into the brand of the organization and they're the tricks to do it really well. And I think the NHS sort of maybe relaxes a little bit much on its brand and expects people to be loyal without pushing the effort on the other side of that equation, which is we value you because look, we're going to equip you, we're going to train you, we're going to give you the tools you need to do your job and we're going to make sure you're not on your own in any way, sort of, you know, metaphysically, if you see what I mean. Well, I think there's a really powerful thing there from the public public sector. And it's not about the tech. It's just about the way you treat people. It's a great point. that you know, And it really resonates with something that my partner says. He works in construction um, and he when he joined his company or probably long after actually, but they said, right, what do you need to be able to do your job well? And he's told them this really high spec laptop and this amazing computer because he does need it. But what he said is if they hadn't given him that, then he'd be incessantly saying, I need an upgrade now. I need an upgrade, another one now. And they'd have to buy him loads of kit. But instead they got him what he needed at the beginning. And he's never asked them for a new one. He's like, I don't want to get rid of this laptop now. I want to keep it. It's got all my stuff on it. It's a faff to change over to a different one. But in the NHS, we give people like the the lowest possible that we can get away with and then they have to keep getting new ones and it's annoying for everyone and I think you're right that if we just if you value people enough initially they don't want to keep upgrading because they've got the thing they need and that's all they need there's also a different logic to it which is private sector organizations realize especially if you're in a finance industry right so you're paying some bloke you know or some person you know hundreds of thousands of pounds a year to to help you kind of you know do derivative trading or something whatever it might be you do not need somebody who you're paying. So that means that every hour that he's sitting at his desk, you're chucking thousands of pounds at it. I mean, literally, that's how expensive they are. If he spends an hour waiting for a ticket to be answered to fix his laptop, you've just lost two grand. And that's cheaper than the laptop that you're just about to give him. Right. So just give it to him because you don't want him to stop working. You want him to work as fast as he possibly can. He wants every tool you can give him so that every moment of that value that you're the cost of him, I'm saying, say him, it could be anybody. Um, is, is best spent doing the work that he can do. Uh, so anything that subtracts from their ability to deliver for you in the thing that they're skilled at is a waste of money. And even though maybe nurses' salaries aren't as expensive as derivative traders in the city, it's definitely the same logic, which is their value is this thing. Do not disable them to do it. When I arrived in, in, in our trust, you know, you realize that some people, you know, might wait 20 minutes to turn their laptops on. And is that stopping them from doing their job? Is that reducing the care we can give our patients, blah, blah, blah. You know, so it's the same logic. So that, that short-sightedness about, money and kit actually has a hidden cost that is way bigger in my view and so you know so don't make that mistake it's there's something about just sort of doing the maths on equipping people that I think public sector organizations not just the NHS public sector organizations sort of get a little bit they don't see it properly whereas private sector organizations they're so crucial about the money it's much clearer in their in their paradigm but actually the same applies we just don't don't have the same sort of let's say exacting mathematical kind of calculations about wasted time for a member of staff, meaning X for costs and so on and so forth, which is the same though. So that, that would be one example I would definitely use as a, a knowledge from the, the private sector. But conversely, I think 
the NHS and public sector sort of have an insecurity about what's happening in the public sector. And I think the example of the pandemics, they shouldn't be insecure. You sometimes think, oh, well, you worked in the public sector, you must know all these things. And I know I work with lots of technical people in the NHS. They're sort of slightly nervous that they're sort of disconnected from, you know, and therefore they could never go into the public to private sector because their skill sets are so old and rubbish. And there's this kind of insecurity that's way bigger than it really is. I mean, you know, some of the organizations I've worked in, the mess of their systems are just unbelievable. And you, the NHS sort of kind of chastises itself a lot about how rubbish its stuff is. It's rubbish in many, many other organizations, the private sector as well. So there's an insecurity that I think is misaligned with the truth. You know, you'd want people in the NHS and the public sector to be as skilled as the people in the private sector. And maybe they're not as skilled in certain areas, but they're definitely not years behind. And you can get there quite quickly with a bit of work as well. So that's another factor, which is not to be insecure about it and, and not feel like you're just on a sort of a go slow lane, because that's not helpful to for your confidence to be able to fix problems either. I think we're getting better, aren't we, in the NHS at saying, actually, we're doing really well in this and we're leading the way in this and let's share our work more. And that's a really lovely thing to see that people are willing to share what they're doing and that it helps everybody kind of level up is the phrase we all use all the time at the moment, isn't it? But everybody trying to work together to improve the experience across the country in the NHS rather than being like, our little bit of the NHS has done this well and we want to keep it to ourselves and be the best at it. I think it's good to see the sharing. And I don't know whether that's something that they do well in the private sector possibly not because they're trying to make money off how well they're doing they will share so when i worked in banking there's this thing called the principles of reciprocity sounds very grand but actually if you're trying to save yourselves from getting fraudulent activity so like so for instance if you're like out there getting credit cards and then you're running them up and then you're disappearing and you're getting another credit with another bank another credit card with another bank so so the banking industry for a long time realized sharing data about customers stops fraud and they will share very quickly if it's going to say, save them money so it's not it's not that the sharing doesn't happen but they, it's it, it, private sector is pretty simple calculation does it improve the bottom line of this organization if sharing improves the bottom line they will do it without a blink you know straight away so so there's sort of versions of it in the public sector in the private sector but not as and the, the, one of the wonderful things about being in the nhs i find is i can ring up any cio for any trust and i can say how did you do that and they will tell me exactly and they'll give me the papers they'll give me the technical stuff they'll give me all the information about how they did it it's such a powerful sharing community that's kind of learning more and more as i've been in the nhs i think to sort of share more effectively with itself but it, it's so wonderful to be able to ring up anybody and say how did you do that and they there's no barrier to sharing that there's no sort of no i know that i'm not going to share with you it's the opposite they're kind of almost begging to tell you about stuff and that's an amazingly powerful thing that for a long conversation inside of the nhs to utilize more of so you know that's a benefit it has over the private sector for sure Another thing that I didn't say while you were saying it, but I'll just go back briefly to when you were talking about recognizing the value of staff and the, while nurses and other clinicians might not be paid as much as somebody in the private sector, we still have a value on our time and that we should make it easy for them to log on or all of that kind of bit you were saying. Um, and it, while it might be cheap to get a nurse, the thing that we, or a other clinician, there is such a lack of them and so many vacancies that it, their value isn't just in how much they're being paid, but in the fact that there isn't enough time to do all of the things that those clinicians need to do. So I think that the kind of calculation that we're all trying to make is that if we can save the time of clinicians by making it really easy with the digital kit, then we have a huge net benefit across the system by freeing up clinicians' time. And I, I know that um, Natasha Phillips and her team yeah, uh, and, and at NHS England are trying really hard to focus on releasing time to care. And so that that kind of really fits well with what you were saying there about how private sector are valuing their staff and how we need to learn from the way that they do that. I think them, let's spend loads more money on kit on really fancy laptops for all of our clinicians so that it works really fast because it's a m much more sensible way to work. 
I'm sure if you were to do the maths on it, it would work out. You could probably not at a high level, you could do the maths on it, which would say something like, you know, for every moment of care that you can create because of better technology, a lack of failing technology or bad systems, et cetera, et cetera, means a bit more time with a patient for a particular clinician in a setting, in a certain setting, every single one of those contact with a patient, you could, I think quite easily make a connection saying that's going to improve the outcomes of that patient in some way. Even if it's just a visit to say, how are you doing? It will improve someone's overall outcomes. And therefore, if you then calculate at the end of all of that, how many people have needed more care or less care, the costs of major sort of treatments, mental health, major operations, or whatever it might be, that's something that could have been avoided. The cost implications coming back would be easily kind of you know justifiable but we just don't make that full connection which is you know if you don't do all of this thing it's going to lead to that and that's really expensive that operation is going to cost you two hundred thousand pounds or that operation is going to cost you 50 grand or whatever it might be and so we don't make that calculation about why is it so worth doing it and that maybe that's because i did a bit of time in public health thing and i see the kind of the compound effects that you go forwards on thing you know they say that most of your um costs in your life will happen in the last few months of your time. You know, your cost of the NHS is all stacked towards the last period of time of your life. And so therefore everything that we can do to engaging with people, keeping them well and so on, is a reduction in that massive cost that happens at the end of people's lives. And so I think it all makes logical sense. And community nursing weirdly is really well situated in that role as well. So that's a fascinating place to shift for me from public health to the NHS and see that continuity of care that works in that way. I wonder that some of the difficulty in that seems to me might be around that yes, we'll be making a saving to the NHS, but the pots of money don't work like that in the NHS. It's much more complicated. And so we might make a big investment in digital kit to save time for community nurses because outcomes will improve, but it might save the money in an acute trust where they're not having to do so many um, operations or whatever. So if we're not going to see the money come back into our trust, then it's hard to make the decision to um, to spend to put the outlay into into all the kits, so I think that maybe adds to the complication of the NHS. The NHS is very complicated when it comes to the funding streams. So you're you're so you know we 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 be careful we go down the whole rabbit hole of the politics of the, the NHS. But the the formations of ICBs, integrated care boards, the fact that they've got a system view, the fact that you know we're trying to get to a place where we can demonstrate the outcomes of the work that we do to improve things. Then if you can look look at a system population and have a view and then say, how do I make the funding? If you can demonstrate the outcomes and then, and then people at that level can sort of see, oh, that means they're not gonna show up for operations, then you could start to get the benefits back to the organizations that's stopping the problem in the first place rather than the one that has to fix it at a later stage. So I think, you know, optimistically speaking, obviously massively optimistically speaking, there is an opportunity for these things to be solved and you can try to play your part in making sure that you're providing the information for the things that you're doing to help. But it's not simple, I would agree with you, it's super complicated, but it does feel, I mean, maybe I'm just naively optimistic, but it does seem that certain elements that could make this happen are forming. You know, there is sort of a, I mean, my experience of being in the public sector now for coming up to eight years is that it's amazing it's there. There's a lot of people hidden away doing some amazing work that no one knows. And it sort of tends to move in the right direction, regardless of all the external factors. It seems to slowly go to make things better. It's not easy and it has ups and downs, but it has a sort of a tendency to sort of get better and better and better. So yeah, optimistic for the future for that stuff lovely to hear some optimism there i think it's i think it's complicated it's complicated but we are all working really hard to make it happen in the way that it should i don't want to drag us into thinking negatively again but my next question is what you think some of the barriers are to digital transformation in the nhs so we've alluded to some of them already but um interesting to hear what you think on that one what's currently fascinating me is um the kind of the tribes of the NHS, I'm fascinated by sort of organisational sort of psychologies. And so the NHS is full of tribes, clinical tribes, digital technical tribes, 
blah, blah, blah. You know, there's all sorts of different tribes, even different clinical tribes or different professions in the NHS or sort of versions like that as well. Um, and and I think so there's a there's a thing about acknowledging when you go into an organization about how it sort of sees itself psychologically speaking as an entity and then how do you kind of help an organization trans transform to adopt new practices and so on and sort of by empowering those tribes because those power those tribes have to assist so i think so the the difficulty is there's lots of tribes and they sort of have their very view and because it's there's a little bit tribalness in the nhs they're they're already in a bit of a stance of sort of protecting their tribe and trying to make sure their tribe is not subsumed or put down by another tribe and there's all this sort of kind of unwritten sort of i would over analogize and say warfare going on in organizations all the time right so this is happening so you go in with a transformation agenda you're walking into a battle that's already been going on maybe for 70 years and you need to be very cognizant of that and sort of work out how to not necessarily just become another factor on the war on the battlefield and sort of help people transform so i think that's the sort of the kind of the weird how i see these kind of roles of coming in and sort of helping people transfer and so i think the work that we're doing in sussex i think is game changing in this regard i think the whole kind of advent of things like clinical clinicians nurses clinical ah you know, digital clinical nurses and ah allied health professionals etc is is the way to sort of operate in that sphere i know i over analogize from a battle perspective but you see my sort of analogy is so if you're if you if you acknowledge the fact that these tribes exist and then you kind of basically morph yourself to be a part of the tribe that you're trying to transform and have that conversation with them from their perspective you sort of take away some of the resistance to transformation because it's seen as being enough you know to digital when it's at its worst in organizations trying to do so it's just seen as them it people and and going to go away we, we don't want to deal with it if you can sort of become the people that you're trying to transform and let them know that you see the world through their eyes and then work with them to transform. I think that's a much more powerful way of doing it. And it works in different organizations. In the private sector, it tends to sort of be easier in some respects, because ultimately, if you can demonstrate the fact that the work that you can do is going to make them more efficient, make them make more money, then somebody senior is going to say, do it. And there's no argument about it, because that's the sort of the bottom line sort of rules all things in many ways. Not to say that you don't have battles, but it sort of gives you an, an ultimate arbiter. The public sector doesn't have that ultimate arbiter. And so therefore, I think it's more complicated to do that transformation, but sort of getting closer to the tribes, understanding what their pains and worries are, and then sort of being with them on this transformation journey is, is the right way to go about it. So I'd say that it's a barrier, but I think, you know, sort of developing as we are, as you know, sort of ideas around digital nursing and other such things, I think are a really, really brilliant way for us to sort of go further down that road. So I'm optimistic again around that, but I see that as being a major barrier. I sort of have a, a sort of a massive curiosity around some of the sort of the unwritten rules of the NHS. So there's a sort of a clinical infallibility sort of rule. So all clinicians can only make perfect decisions. And actually, when you read lots of evidence around clinical decision-making, you can see that there's massive variabilities. Two doctors seeing the same patient will make completely different decisions, and one of them will be wrong for the patient's outcome. You know, so, so therefore, I think you could look at it in a tribal way, but you could also say, you know, digital, ultimately, all the kit, all the wires, all the cybersecurity, so all these things that we do are ultimately about capturing and giving access to data to improve the care that we can give to patients. That's fundamentally what we're trying to do. It's just about the data. What do I know about this patient? How can I give you more information at that moment of care to improve the care that you're doing? So if you accept the fact that you're on this road as a digital sort of thing to provide better data to help improve better decision-making, I think it sort of it sort of it challenges that kind of medical infallibility and say actually you should bring data closer to the kind of the clinical decision making all the time, and that way that you can remove variability, you can increase the precision of the care that you're providing, you can feed back 
to the clinicians where they've gone off track and they're making the wrong decisions very quickly and do improvements. So I think those are the sort of the barriers, but also the opportunities about trying to make it better for the future as well. It's lovely to hear you talk um, about the value of kind of clinicians speaking to clinicians about how we're going to change this and bringing the digital team closer to the deliver the people delivering care um i think we perhaps haven't been explicit enough to image in saying that i work at the trust that dim works at um and we're working together to kind of to to make that happen more and i think it's uh, it's lovely to be supported in that way by somebody who comes from a very technical background to that you're very um vocal about the value of having clinicians um helping to lead the digital changes that we're that we're working and towards also- but also to touch and charge you, but also to to give you the tools in those conversations. So, you know, that bit about data and the power of it and the right moment to have it. And there's multiple ways in which you can, you know, so obviously coming things like finance and travel, I'm, you know, I spend my life immersed in data about what its use is and so on, mostly to try to make more money with it. But there's a lot of power in it. And so that you come into the NHS and you say, so if you're trying to set up those conversations like yourself with a clinician to another clinician, ultimately you need to find a way to have a really sophisticated conversation about data and that sounds kind of scary whoa what's that sort of thing you know but actually using data being articulate about it understanding its value at certain points and those kind of things that's that that it's not about knowing how to do wires and plug things in and fix laptops it's about being able to have a conversation about the value of data at the various moments in the pathway in the care of a patient and what data could improve that at that particular moment if you can get the different tribes, yourself being an example of one, to be able to have that conversation really powerfully at the right moment with clinicians who are on that change journey, then that's the that's the sweet spot. If you get that right, then all the tech, all the laptops, all the mobile phones, all the whizzy stuff is really sort of just a mechanism to enable that conversation. It's um, a relief to me to hear that it's not, in your view, a, a big requirement to learn all about the wires and networks, etc., because that's not an area for me that feels like... Um, a particular interest but I think you're right that clinicians have got so much to learn from people who work in the digital space to be able to really further what we're trying to do as clinicians and we need to see people who work in digital as allies in that and people who can really add to what we're doing and help us so um, the more that we can see it less as like a tribal battle and more of like a here's some people who can really help us to move forward um, the way that we approach patient care the better so lovely to hear you speak in that way about it Um, and it's great to work in a trust where we can see it in that way rather than seeing it as a battle with IT teams against clinicians. Um, so I think we're probably going to be rounding off quite soon, but as you know, we've got a couple of questions which we are going to be asking everybody on this podcast. We, I could happily talk for much longer, but I think... Um, yeah, but apparently people don't want to listen to podcasts that go on forever, rambling away about our own trust. More, more, so more for them. More for them. them, indeed. So um, so one of the, the final questions that I wanted to ask, and it's not so much about healthcare, but more broadly about using digital technology. So what digital technology has most impacted your life and why? It's got to be a smartphone at the moment. I mean, I, I sometimes think about the power of that device that I carry in my pocket all the time, probably never put down really, um, much to probably annoyance of my children and my wife. Um, the fact that it's a very powerful communication device, I use it to manage finances for me, my family, you know, people I look after, you know, in my wider family, I manage, uh, you know, my shopping on it. I watch TV on it. You know, I do everything with it. I mean, who would have thought, you know, 15 years ago that that's the, the power of that complete, you know, that you can have, you know, even with my little kids, I can see where they are. 
You know, if I'm worried about they've gone missing, I can find them on it. You know, I mean, everything about it is unbelievable. So, and and we're just sort of scratching the surface in that kind of that kind of, in my view, you know, the the power of what that represents. I'm really fascinated by what that means in my health journey. I can now have text messages or little messaging chats with my GP. I don't need to go and see them any longer. I can just get them to do what I want them to do with very quick little dialogues over just you know tapping away on my phone. I mean, it's an amazing sort of enabler. You know, I mean, I was I, sometimes my wife and I get freaked out by our kids sitting on their iPads. And I was chatting to my little boy this morning the other day going, what are you doing on your iPad? And he goes, I'm just learning about the American Civil War. I'm like, carry on. That's really good. You know, so so so, so that's just an example of like that. I just imagine we had that when we were kids. Right. That sort of immediate access to everything sort of is sort of the paradigm. There. So for me, that would be the most powerful technologies out there. And I think, as I say, we're scratching the surface of where that can take us next. But. Yeah, that would be my example. It's really um, interesting to hear you talking about your kids there, and um, and I think you're right that there's been a long. I remember when I when I was um, a teenager, and we had the it was like the you know big old boxy computer, and we, it wasn't anything very snazzy, but we could get access to the internet. And there was a lot of fear around all the parents and teachers thinking, don't just sit and stare at the screen all the time because you know that's kind of taking you away from the real learning or the real um, way of living. And then I think things are kind of transitioning now, where we're realizing that that all of that exciting learning learning opportunity that you can find behind that screen and really actually encouraging it as long as it's obviously as a parent you have to do some kind of balance but um but that you've got the whole world of information in your pocket and you can find out anything you want if you're interested it's very exciting isn't it fantastic and the last question i expect you've been looking forward to this one dear i think it suits you this question um it's um if a mo- if a movie was made of your life who would you want to play you and why I do think about it. So I did say Simon Pegg, didn't I? So that's just like to try and the first, the most scrawny, uh, scrawny actor, sort of self, self-deprecating actor that you can think of. I'm sure there's another one that's probably more true, which is probably a, a bit part character actor in some sort of spy movie. Who's the guy who spends his whole time staring at the computer, shouting out instructions through a headset. So one of those guys, I think Simon Pegg has actually done that in some movies as well, if I think right. So maybe he's the right choice. Shall we, um, well, you can write to him and ask him if he's happy to play you, see if he's willing to take on the role. Um, well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. I mean, we often get to talk through our jobs, but it's nice to talk, um, more abstractly about, um, digital technology and transformation for the podcast. So I'm so grateful for making, for you making time for this. And, um, I know you're a very busy man, so brilliant to have a slot in your diary um thank you for sharing all of your experience with our listeners and i know that they'll find it really useful i think we're trying to to see this as an opportunity to learn as though you don't know really anything about digital health so i think that's been a really good introduction to like where the nhs is at the moment and what we're trying to achieve um is there is there anything else that you wanted to say before we sign off no just thank you it's been fun to chat and enjoyed it um so yeah good luck thank you Thank you so much. And thanks again to Chime, who are our fantastic sponsors. And thank you to our lovely listeners. And if you want to find out any more information about anything we discussed today, have a look in the show notes where I'll put some notes um, and some links. And until next time, we'll say goodbye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Digitel, where we're navigating the digital healthcare world. Any views, thoughts and opinions expressed by the host or guests belong solely to them and not necessarily to their employer, organisation, committee or other group or individual. Mm-hmm.